Doing It with Mike Sachs is a new podcast. If you'd like to advertise on the show or discuss bringing it to your network, please send a note to doingitwithmikesacks at gmail.com. That's D-O-I-N-I-T with Mike Sachs at gmail.com. Welcome, welcome to the first episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. That is Doing It with Mike Sachs. Now, I was not going to mention this, but I feel that it's only fair to you, the listener, to tell you how I came up with such a tremendous title for a podcast. I'm sure you're wondering. And the answer is I paid a lot of money for a focus group out in Seattle featuring the hottest young millennial minds. And I paid these guys and women to come up with just a perfect name to attract scores of listeners of all ages, of all sexes, of all races, of all religions, almost religions, and I think they chose well. Some they chose that I did not like, and here are some of the titles. Lickin' It with Mike Sachs, Pump It Up with Mike Sachs, Lick It, Stick It, Flick It with Mike Sachs, Cool Stuff with Mike Sachs, Le Podcast with Mike Sachs, and my least favorite, A Slice of Fomunda Cheese with Mike Sachs. I am no fan of Fomunda Cheese, but I'm happy with doing it with Mike Sachs. And quite frankly, I'm fine with the $45,000 that I spent after I remortgaged my apartment to pay for it. So my name is Mike Sachs. I'm a writer for magazines, the web as well, and I will occasionally put out a book. My last book is called Poking a Dead Frog, Conversations with Today's Great Comedy Writers. Why a podcast, you might be asking. In fact, you might be asking a lot of things like, why am I listening to this podcast? Well, a couple of reasons that I created this podcast. One, I'm not sure. No, I am sure. I love radio. I used to work in radio in New Orleans at WTUL 91.5 on your mega wave, and I loved it. I did that for all four years of college and a few years after college. The station was really one of the few places, quite honestly, where I felt comfortable when I was at college. I was a bit of a shut-in I had depression, OCD, and many other things, which we'll be getting to down the road, just not this episode because it's way too depressing. I was also, and still am, a huge fan of music and a big fan of comedy on the radio, going back to shows that were broadcast way before I was born, such as Gene Shepard's shows and Bob and Ray shows and a lot of other type of shows. Now, later on in college, I worked as an intern at Voice of America, and I love that. In more recent years, I've been on quite a few radio shows and podcasts talking about articles or promoting books, and I found that the connection between listener and host or guest is really strong, perhaps stronger than it is between writer and reader. So I think that a podcast can deal with some subjects that I'm interested in better, more effectively than a magazine article or even a book. This show will be monthly. Most of it will be real. There'll be interviews with my favorite comedy writers or other writers or just about anyone who's produced something that I love. Upcoming guests include Bob Odenkirk, Adam Resnick, Neil Pollock, Beth Newell of Reductress, Megan Amram, Durf Backdurf, author of My Friend Dahmer and Trashed. Durf is a graphic novelist who went to high school with Jeffrey Dahmer and wrote about it, and it's one of my favorite graphic novels. As you can imagine, not all of his memories are very pleasant. So in this show, not in this specific show, but in general, 
There will be my thoughts and other odd bits that I've taped off the radio over the years. I'll also be playing a lot of music that I love. Music not really heard on radio, whether it's new or not being played, or old and never played, or bootleg live versions, or outtakes, or whatever. And yes, I just said bootleg. Most of what you hear will be real. Some of it will be fake. Completely made up. Interviews, thoughts, other such things. So I'm telling you that now. Please don't sue me. I have no money. Hopefully, however, it'll be enjoyable. At the very least, I hope this show will be a pleasant way to pass the time on the subway or in your car or your rickshaw or however you get to your cosmetic dental appointments. A few things. I received a batch of letters and emails recently from my doing it listeners or doing itters as I call them. No, I don't. And I want to read a few of these. Dear doing it with Mike Sachs. And this is a letter and this is difficult to read because it looks to be written on the back of a greasy placemat with a carpenter's pencil. And it just says, are you missing a finger? And this is from Jessica Vance, Houston, Texas. Yes. Dear doing it with Mike Sachs, who is your favorite Baldwin brother? Christopher Elkin, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I like Zeppo. I also like the idiot-looking one who is a born-again Christian and likes to ride skateboards. He's fun, too. One more email. Can you please talk about your investigative series, Getting to the Bottom of It? Do you still believe that Benji Mortison did not kill that person? This comes from Ted Travelstead in Virginia Beach, Virginia. So, a little backstory. About six months ago, we heard word from an investigative reporter. His name was Rich Jordan works and lives down in Maryland, and we heard from Rich about a teenager who had been falsely convicted. Now, this turned into a 15-part series called Getting to the Bottom of It, and this series produced a ton of controversy and a lot of questions from our listeners, and quite frankly, questions from us now that we've re-listened to it. We will be talking with that investigative journalist, Rich Jordan, and we will be asking him some difficult questions this is definitely something you do not want to miss. Well, what, what happens here now? This is it. <laughs> okay, this is it. Doing it with Mike Sachs. Here is the rundown of the show. I always like to know what's coming up, and I assume maybe you will too. First up, classic rock DJ suffering a nervous breakdown. In interview with Emma Allen, editor at New Yorker, Larry King will be babbling. Colonel Sanders will then be babbling. Interview with David Sedaris. And lastly, I will be in touch with my first crush, my first girlfriend, my first kiss, Jenny Cook. First thing first. So there's a lot about me that you probably don't know. And one of those things is that I like to podcast. You know that. But when I'm not podcasting or doing any of my other hobbies, such as recording music for yoga practitioners or walking through dangerous areas for the kicks or collecting my pornographic Cabbage Patch dolls, I like to do a lot of things. But what I like most... I like to travel around this big old crazy gorgeous quilt of a country, and I like to stay at listeners' homes. It's a ton of fun, and I, it has produced some real surprises over the years. So a few weeks ago, I was headed out in my lease 2002 RAV4 hybrid to Hagerstown, Maryland, beautiful Hagerstown, Maryland, and I was setting out to visit an avid listener of this podcast. Now, it turned out he wasn't home, so I waited. And when he finally arrived about a week later, he insisted that he was not a listener and told me to get off his property. Well, that's happened before. But regardless, I was in the car for many hours. And like I always do when I'm cruising the back roads, I love to blast some serious tasty licks, or as I call it, awesome tunage, which is usually jazz fusion or lesbian acapella groups. Sometimes it's Norwegian death metal or bluegrass versions of Nirvana songs. Other times it's just classic rock. So I was switching the dials 
of the radio. One of my hands was at the window. The other was holding an e-cig. I was steering the car with my knees, and I came across a really interesting DJ for a classic rock station. The DJ's name was Jimmy Jam Johnson, which I'm assuming was not real. But what did appear to be real was the fact that he was in the midst of some sort of nervous breakdown, and it did not sound like shtick. It sounded real. Anyway, I taped portions of it, running about six minutes, and I want to play those for you now. Now, I warn you, it's a little disturbing, but I think it's well worth it. Yeah. <laughs> that was Boston more than a feeling. Fun fact, they say that Tom Scholz, creative force behind Boston, took anywhere from five to six months just to record one guitar lick. You want to hear another interesting fact? I hear that goddamn song one more time. Might just do something I'm very much going to regret. Saw a heavenly light above the house again this morning. It was in the shape of a giant heart. This is Heart Magic Man. <laughs> Kansas, carry on wayward son. You know what happened when I rose above all the noise and confusion? More headaches. Met a young woman once who later became my wife. She had a tasty mole above her right nipple. Used to make me do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Made me lettuce sandwiches with just the thinnest layer of heartbreak. You never tasted heartbreak so tangy. Didn't need mustard or ketchup, that you can believe. Lord Almighty, I do still love her. Why did she leave? Did I have to do with the lasers that shoot out of my eyes? Uh-oh, my toes are hot. I just lit them on fire. Van Halen, hot for teacher. Okay, okay, we know already. You're a toker, you're a joker. But are you a hero? Need a hero, listeners. A savior of sorts. After the divorce was finalized, I gave myself a little bath in the office's kitchen sink. Washed away my past, then left accounting and, like a butterfly, molted into Jimmy Jam Johnson. The DJ is suffering a nervous breakdown. This ain't shtick, ladies and gentlemen. So now I'm just waiting for a friend. So are the Stones. Wake up, people. 66 degrees, just the slightest chance of rain. The money sound. Be my first caller on the Z106 hotline. You'll find yourself winning a little trip to my private lair. Speaking of which, found a dead giraffe on my lawn again. I love animals. This is House of the Rising Sun. Was that just Pink? Or was that Floyd? Whoever it was, tear down that goddamn wall already. Going on around town, it's Ladies' Night at Hammerjacks. Popcorn trip night at Max's. Spoke to my ex during the last commercial break. Seemed that she was none too pleased that I called collect. <laughs> Who's this elf standing in my palm? I like his can-do spirit. Can't move my arm to save the ball of life. Fire. Still can't. Hey, it's Buffalo Wing Night at Shooter McGee's. She just bought a house in Tallahassee. It appears the grad student is moving in and guess what? <coughs> That's the Z106 party siren. My wife just sent me an invitation. You like weddings? How about White Wedding? Billy Idol on Z-Rock! Fog hat! It's 8.14 on a Monday morning, and I'm taking a slow ride to the end of my shift. Or to hell! Or to my townhome off I-95. My lady and I once made love in a back booth of an Arthur Treacher's restaurant. My lady and I once watched the sunset while doing it in an alley behind a Wawa Market. 
We are the champions. I am a puma, all proud and powerful, scanning the Serengeti for a purpose in life. Quee! Buddy, you're a boy, make a big <laughs> Alice Cooper, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Last song of the day, folks. Y'all think I'm a nice guy? You won't after this story. Gonna show up at my ex's wedding and punch the grad student in the nose. That spray of blood will be ferocious. Yours truly, gonna be arrested. The big dog is up next to take you into the noon hour. That big dog's gonna play that rock and roll music nice and loud. So, until the morn, keep it on the upside, but don't keep it down your pants because it could bite a leper. That phrase is trademarked. Just performed a somersault in my mind. You like gymnastics? I don't. Hey, what can I say? Life's been good. Do you think so, Joe? Gotta disagree. Take it away, bro. Wow. Jimmy Jam Johnson. Guy needs some help. But there'll be more from this guy in upcoming episodes. I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to play more of his work. And I hope that'll be okay. I hope he'll be okay. In the meantime, I just know that the jams will get him through. Coming up later in the show, an interview with David Sedaris. Up next, however, an interview with another great, Emma Allen. She is on the editorial staff of The New Yorker. I don't go to too many websites a day. I just visit a handful. But one of the sites that I do go to is Daily Shouts and Murmurs on NewYorker.com. Now, the person in charge is Emma Allen, and Emma, along with Susan Morrison of The New Yorker, edit quite a bit of the magazine. Emma edits for both the magazine and for online. She works a few floors beneath me from where I work, and because she is very kind, she said yes to a phone interview, and this is that interview. Can you tell us your your position title? Um, So I'm the editor of Daily Shouts, and then I am the assistant editor of Shouts and Murmurs and an assistant editor on Talk of the Town. You know, a lot of people, myself included, look at The New Yorker as having this shroud of mystery surrounding it, almost as if it was like the Kremlin or something, you know, what goes on behind closed doors. So let's try to open up some of that mysteriousness. You're in charge Mm -hmm. of the Daily Shouts on NewYorker.com. Sure. Now, what is your job exactly? So basically, I mean, what I do is I'm sort of the first line of defense for much of the humorous content that's coming in. Um, I started here about three and a half years ago, and at the time, we were just sort of figuring out what to do with the website, how to how to do things on the internet. We decided to launch a daily shout. Um, at that point, I was really just Susan Morrison, who is the editor of the print shouts. I, was, I sort of started just as her assistant, and daily shouts at the beginning was mostly just rejected print shouts by the usual cast of print shouts writing characters for, you know, many years. But it was very sporadic. Daily was a bit of a euphemism, and things sort of just got thrown up whenever Mike Lager, who was running Culture Desk, could field them. And so I sort of started helping him out and then got more and more involved and started reaching out to people who I thought would be good, younger people going to shows and readings and um, encouraging people to submit and started getting the volume up and sort of shifting the sort of tone and range of it a little bit. And then at a certain point, (laughs) it became clear that I was just sort of doing it. And luckily, Mike Lager and Susan Morrison were like, great, 
go ahead, take over. And it's been amazing because since then now we have, you know, a piece every day at 1130 and a sort of huge range of writers, different ages from all over, more women, more diversity in general, getting started on doing more video stuff. We probably get like 20 pieces by people who we know or have worked with before or have been recommended by other people um, who are submitting directly to me. And then I actually do, in fact, read the slush pile, which I think currently has about 800 (laughs) pieces in it. Really the only place, I mean, we have poetry submissions you can send and cartoon and fiction, but then the, like, one mysterious thing is, like, you can send her Shouts and Murmurs. And, you know, plenty of people don't know what Shouts and Murmurs is. Plenty of people who read the serious parts of The New Yorker think it's their place to express their views, whether they be a shout or a murmur. Often people are like, this is more of a murmur than a shout. (laughs) What does that mean exactly? It means it's like some essay about how their brother drowned in a pond when they were 10 and it's yeah so, <laughs> so that's um, more of a murmur there's a lot of just weeding through that and reminding people that it's humorous fiction and then of course i always get the response that was like well i thought it was humorous oh. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> that's just, that doesn't help anyone's chances by <laughs> no not really it's amazing people we get so many great people submitting through the slush pile somebody should be telling them like hey the person just on step two so so they would send directly to you? Not to give away too many secrets from the depths of the Kremlin, but, you know, we have, like, a standard email address. People who are savvy can figure out okay. how, to, how, to, how to get stuff past the so armed we, we guard. So we didn't mention it here, but you, you, can, you can fiddle your way in. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that I, lo- I like a lot about the Daily Shouts is that mm-hmm. it's opened up an avenue for writers, young writers, um, like you said, women writers, and those writers who wouldn't have been in a magazine to to find a place in the magazine to have a voice. Yeah, well, and one of the great things, too, is that it, you know, it started with sort of just having a greater diversity of people who could be published online. But then, you know, it's a good place to sort of hone the shouts and murmurs voice if you're an aspiring shouts writer. And then, you know, we've had a number of, like, a pretty large number of people who started out as, you know, just web humor writers then break into the magazine. Often in the past, if you were like a young person, you'd send your one submission in, it would get rejected, and then there wasn't really a chance to be guided um, towards the type of, like the quality of piece that you would need to be in the magazine. And so I think it's, you know, it's nice that we can sort of build people up on the web so that eventually they can get pieces in in the magazine. So when you say 800 submissions, that's what, weekly? Oh, no. That's what's currently sitting in the slush pile, waiting to be okay, read. So that can go back how, a couple weeks or so? It goes back. We have. I get back to people within three months. Okay. So it's 90 days. And when you say 20 regulars, that's, that's the 20 regulars sending to you consistently? Oh, no. I mean, there are way more than 20 regulars. I mean, we just had, I actually just had a, a goon meetup, as, as we called it, um, for all the sort of younger people in New York, mm-hmm. um, and that was, I think, like 60 people wow. showed up at that. No kidding. So, yeah, they're actually, they're quite a lot. I get 20 pieces a day from that pool. So if a young writer wants to get in the magazine with a shouts, a humor piece, mm-hmm. the best way is through you and, and the daily shouts. That's sort of the a breeding ground on how to do it properly. Yeah, I mean, and Susan, she has 
her own avenues of, of recruiting people. Um, Alexis Wilkinson just had her first piece, and Susan had been, you know, working with her for a number of years trying to figure out what a she... A number of years? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, you know, Susan had been corresponding and, um, you know, working on her with various pieces. So they're, you know, they're different avenues, but, um, yeah, Daily Shouts is, is certainly a good one. So are you scouring the net? And if so, where are you going to find some of these writers? Do you reach out to certain writers whose work you enjoy? Oh, yeah, definitely. I do I do that, you know, a number of times a week at least. Um, yeah, scouring, scouring the net, the deep web, deep dives in the deep web. I read sort of the same humor pages that I think everyone thinks of, sort of the, like, McSweeney's, Splitsider, The Toast, Hairpin. I mean, just sort of those, but... That tends to be, at this point, a sort of similar crew of writers. When things are good, even when they're posted on sort of obscure sites, they tend, they can get a lot of momentum. And then, you know, on social media, it's great. I feel like I am constantly having friends post things from, like, you know, random blogs that they love, you know, sports blogs or whatever. And, you know, there's one really good humorous piece that I would never on my own organically come across these things have a, a way of taking off and then as long as you sort of are just sort of paying attention to other people whose tastes you like, they tend to be a great source of, of good new stuff. I think um, it's amazing that, that, you know, for so many years it was very, very difficult to get into the magazine. Now anyone, you know, whether she's a 15-year-old in Oklahoma or a guy, you know, a high school student in New Hampshire has an equal amount of chance of being in it, at least on the website, as anyone else. Yeah, well, I mean, humor is more so than I think other things, too, because the great the great thing about humor is that, like, it, it truly is much more democratic. There's no, there's no, you don't need to have learned the style of The New Yorker. You don't need to be, have special access to sources or, you know, have been educated in, in journalistic techniques. Things that are funny are funny. <laughs> so, you know, it is often surprising to, you know, because I, I don't usually know very much about, especially with the slush pile or, you know, with just recommendations from friends. I don't know much about the people who've written the piece before I've read it and sort of made a, made an opinion about it. So it really... It can. It truly is much more democratic because it's it's just the things that seem original and amusing, and you can be anyone and have a talent for that. I think. What I find interesting too is this is such a specific skill set. You know, writing humor for print mm. runs about a thousand words, and it's really not being done that many places. I mean, it used to be at the back of GQ. That's not being done anymore. Yeah. Esquire does it as visual, and you have McSweeney's. I would thought almost that this would be a lost art in a sense, because I would think that those coming up now in comedy would be more inclined to write videos or to write pieces that weren't so specifically a shouts and type, shouts and murmurs type of piece. But it seems like with 800 submissions, you're never, you're not running low on this type of submission. No, I mean, I think, I think comedy in general is sort of having a mass moment because the internet allows so many people to get their stuff out there. You can, you know, film a cheap sketch video and get it up and have it seen by so many people rather than having to, like, you know, wait for Warren Michaels to see your improv show and then audition for SNL. <laughs> I guess it's sort of surprising to me, too. People seem to really 
love the the form. Um, and I don't know, I don't know sort of why that is. I guess there are a lot of I think younger writers who came up reading and sort of worshiping like Simon Rich and who else falls in that camp. Well, but, so people are already influenced by Simon? I still think of Simon. <laughs> as being a babe. <laughs> he is still a babe. How old is he? He's not even 30, is he? I think he, he might be 30. He's a, he's a nice guy and a great writer. Yeah. I should get him on the show. He's Yeah, definitely. You know, you know, one of the difficult things about Shouts is that you can't pitch an idea. You know, mm. Even if you're established, right? You can't just say, I have an idea for this. Whereas with a lot of magazines, GQ, Esquire, mm. Vanity Fair, if you're in that world, you can say, listen, I have this idea for a comedy piece. Are you interested? And either they are or they aren't, but you don't have to spend the time putting together a perfect piece ready to go yeah. uh, for submission. Well, but perfect and ready to go is also, I mean, I edit everything that goes on the web. And, like, I think part of, you know, what I've had to do over the past year or so since I fully took over about a year and a half is that you know it's about developing relationships with the writers where they trust that the edit that you're doing is going to improve the piece they like trust your cuts and you know are willing to work with you and being edited is really hard it's it's really hard to look at a changed version of the piece that you thought was perfect and not just bristle at it and try to you know restore everything that has been changed but I think now, like, a lot of people trust that they can send me stuff being like, I don't really know how the ending is going to work, or, like, like I'll be like, you set it up wrong. Like, here, let's set it up with this quote from the news. And, like, you know, now people know that they don't have to agonize for a year about sending something in that, that's, like, the first process, and then we can work together okay, well, on it. So. To know. And I think as far as advice... When, when a New York e editor suggests making changes, if you're a run, young writer, take those changes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true. But even I, like, you know, in, in the talk pieces that I've written, it took me... Talk pieces are hard, too, because they end up being 800 words, and they have to be just because it's like a puzzle getting the section to fit every week. And, you know, every time... The first 10 pieces that I wrote and filed at 1,000 words, and Susan expertly cut down to 800 words it's still you have that moment where you like go into the bathroom and hyperventilate because your favorite joke was cut and like you know that it's not worth fighting because she knows best and it's you know it's you get better at sort of slowing your metabolism in those moments and just right. like and she's there for i mean let's talk about susan morrison she's yeah. sort of legendary in the editorial world she worked uh, at spy magazine mm -hmm. and now she's been at new yorker uh, in charge of shouts for what 1997. She so came she knows what she's doing. I mean, it, it, oh yeah, and she that. overhauled she overhauled the whole section before before Susan Print Emer at the magazine was very like dry and snooty and insidery. I mean, they're of course the like early greats, and the New Yorker was established as a humor magazine. She brought on the sort of like SNL world, the Simpsons writing world, the like lampoon world. I mean, and. This was like the world of comedy. <laughs> you know, the, there wasn't the. This is where you were if you worked in comedy, obviously. And she just was so plugged into all of them and changed the the tone of of humor at the magazine entirely. Um, but, yeah. And to to edit humor is not easy. And what you do and what she does, extremely difficult, extremely specific. And I think what a lot of young writers should know is that no joke is. Uh, irreplaceable. 
Yeah. <laughs> if you if if you guys if you, the editors at New Yorker want to cut it, you accept that, and there's a very very good chance that they're right and you're wrong. And even if they're not, even if you think they're not, they're correct. This is just the process of what you do. You just make it easy for you. Uh, as a writer to to deal with and to work yeah. with. Susan's job, your job, is very difficult. You're very busy. So if you have someone who's going to be arguing everything, it just makes sense that that editor isn't going to want to work with you on a consistent, regular basis. That's true. That's certainly true. When when you send an edit and what the writer sends back is just a list of setting everything that you've changed, then it's like, oh, I'm not going to bother to spend time so carefully going through your work because you clearly don't think anything I've done is, is worthwhile. So. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier 800 are now, submissions are now in your slush pile. Oh, yeah. So how many of those will do you think will be accepted? Of those well, 800? I would say I think last week um, I bought two pieces from the slush pile. So that's a pretty good, and I probably read, I don't know, 100 pieces in the week. So that's are there that's mistakes across the board that will instantly get your piece thrown into the reject pile? <laughs> well, one, my biggest pet peeve, maybe, and this is specifically a problem with the flesh pile, is when people address their submissions to dear sirs. Mm. Which is like, oh. I mean, first of all, <laughs> there's all women running this. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that's a... That's a That'll get me in a bad mood right off the bat. Um, people misspell murmur no. <laughs> constantly, yeah, which uh, is also sort of a little alarming. Um, then there, I mean, there, the things that will obviously get you rejected instantly are sort of more of the like, if you've written a piece that's like racist or anti-Semitic. Oh, or, so the racist you know, piece aren't being accepted anymore. <laughs> we try to stick by that rule. Um, and, you know, people also just don't get that there really isn't any first person. You can have a highly fictionalized, like, version of yourself as the sort of narrator. And, you know, people like like Alex Watt will do that all the time. He sort of created this um, ridiculously overwrought version of himself that is sort of runs through all the stories. This, like, fuck-up guy who is, is always just sort of the butt of his own jokes. Um, but, you know... Otherwise, you can't, however funny it is, this, like, David Sedaris is not writing Shouts and Rumors or personal histories, and people just often don't get that. They'll write very funny stuff, but it's, if it is nonfiction, if it is first person, then it's not a Shouts. Um, and then there are just other tropes that we see over and over again, and it doesn't mean that they can't be done, but they have to be done so well in order to even really be considered things include um it's hard to do god at this point <laughs> you have to do you have to do a really good god shout yeah um what are some other tropes uh there's the sort of historical figure using some form of modern technology mm-hmm. and i mean we still do pieces like that we have the virginia wolf uh vita sackville west sex piece up um but that sort of like as a concept, tends to raise a red flag and um, feels very familiar right away. Uh, other things, people at this point, it's like you know when people start doing them, they tend to come in waves. Like there were a bunch of TED Talks ones, and there were people did a couple good ones. We published a couple, but then it's like 
everybody just has to try their hand at the TED Talk parody. Um, rejection letters, oh, this is, people love doing it, and it's so filled with, like, you can, so often these rejection letter parodies are, like, so filled with anxiety and self-loathing, and they're just, they're sort of torturous to read. Um, and then, of course, to reject. What? The rejection, they're, they're writing fake rejection letters. Yeah. Uh, based on what? Their own rejection letters from magazines? Seemingly. Um, I guess the joke is that the sort of arch tone of, of rejection notes strikes people as... That's kind of sad that they know yeah. so well, that voice. That then they I know, and then there's nothing sadder than having to send back a note that's like, despite its evident merit. What will help one's chances? Um, what will help one's chances? Like specifically, I, I always wonder, mm -hmm. does topical help or non-topical? Because topical editors are looking for it, but by the time some of these emails are read in the yeah. pile, it's too late. Well, with the slush pile especially, it's it's so funny. I feel like I live in two alternate realities. One is the time period that I'm actually living in, and the other is wherever I am in the slush pile, which is like right now I'm like just getting to like deflate gate. <laughs> it's like it's this great reminder of the like memes of the recent past. Yeah. Like the dress, like I forgot about the dress. Like that was huge. <laughs> but yet if, they had, if these were known commodities, these writers, and they sent it to you right away, it could be a... Good yeah, but I mean, that's that's part of it. It's like, you know, a lot of the slush pile pieces, you have a better chance of getting accepted from the slush pile if it's not topical, because unless I see it as it pops up and I recognize the name as someone who I, you know, have encountered before and liked or have been meaning to write to, like, sometimes I'll jump ahead and read something in the slush pile, but your, your chances are much better slush-wise just submitting a really creative idea well executed. Um, then, of course... An evergreen-type piece that doesn't go bad. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, sometimes people will do topical pieces, and they'll do it really well, and I'll encounter it and realize, oh, that would have been great to have. This person obviously gets what they're doing, and then I'll send them a personal note saying, hey, sorry, I just got around to your Deflategate piece, but it was among the best I've read. Mm -hmm. um, would love to have you, like, submit again directly to me. So you will read every piece? Yeah. Okay, and is is there a public email that they can, the a young writer can can submit to? It is tny underscore shouts at advancedmags.com. Okay, that's that's a valuable piece of information right there. <laughs> Listen, I I really love the site. It's great every day, and you're doing great work. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up, an interview with comedy great Davis Sedaris. But before that, Larry King will be babbling, and Colonel Sanders will be babbling, too. The real Colonel Sanders, not the fake one I've been seeing recently on advertisements. Colonel Sanders here is not quite getting it. These are real. A student of print journalism. And I just wanted to know, uh, what advice do you have for... Uh, uh, young people coming up into the field. Like, I, a lot of uh, prof professors are telling us how hard it is to get into the field at first. They're just like, no, since you're in the field, do you have any advice on that? For instance, experience, is that important? Uh-huh. Sure. That, is, that, is that probably the most important uh, element? Well, it's way up there. It's way up there? Anything, anything else? Anything you can do? Pressure under fire. Mm -hmm. Done this before. I don't want it to be his first uh, surgery. Okay. Applied himself well. Mm 
These are the things I'd have confidence in, a young MD. Okay. I'm talking about journalism field. I'm lost. What do you mean? The journalism. Like, I'm a student of journalism at a college, and I was just wondering the most important aspect of getting into journalism, not the medical field. I think you're exhausted from 30 nights. I am exhausted from 30 nights. No, no person, even those of us who are superhuman, those of us with uh, Herculean appetites for the diverse and the bizarre, right. even those of us who uh, have shown an aptitude to uh, to uh, uh, fight the good fight and stay the good long battle, even those of us can get tired. And your boy is tired after 30 consecutive nights. I have a half hour to go, and I'm going to do that half hour because I'm a pro. That's what pros do. I'm a professional. Look it up in the book. Okay. That's what we do. We're pros. We're never rude. We don't cop out. We don't tell you that we're ill or that we're looking for the farmhouse in the middle of the desert or that we're parched. We don't tell you that maybe the check didn't come through this month and where the hell does it go anyway if you're a guy who's left 16 forwarding addresses. Okay. So what do you do? What is the answer? Yeah, you're a little perturbed now. Kind of worried about the club. The club? Well, I don't worry about the club. Worry about maybe Jackie might worry. <laughs> nah, don't worry. Okay, just cool it. Life is a breeze. Of course, some breezes, as you know, are 110 miles an hour and get promoted up the hurricanes. I just thought I'd pass that along. We're, speaking of pass it along, we're going to pass along now to the newsroom, the mutual newsroom, high atop the overlooking downtown, beautiful downtown studios of Washington, Virginia, Washington, D.C. The mutual newsroom will get us up to date on the news headlines, and we'll come back with a little more open phone. America will have our salute to my man, Duke Siebert, by taking him to uh, one of his favorite places, one of mine, too, the town of Cooperstown, New York. This is the Larry King Show in Washington, and we'll be right back. Recording. Go again. I found a way to cook. Take two. I found a way to cook extra good. Come on over and, and try my crispy. It's entirely different, and yet it's just as tender and tasty. No, and it's just as finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that real crispy crust that some folks like. And it's just as tender and juicy. I'll get it now. I've, I found a way to cook chicken deep down and get that crispy, that real crispy chicken crust. Yet, yet it's entirely different. No, they don't. This will be wild lines 30, take one. And now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Start again. He said cut it. Go ahead. And, and, and now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. Yet tender and juicy. Is that it? Yeah. That's right, Senator. Take two. Colonel, if you read it. Okay, we're recording. Now you have two now you have two kinds of Kentucky fried chicken to choose from. My regular recipe. Take three. It's entirely different. It's entirely different. Whatever but yes. now you have yourself now you have now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Let me get that scratch off of there and quit looking at it. Quiet, please. A real crusty, real what, what kind of damn crispy crust. Crispy crust. It's really, di it's really different. 
Now you can have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. My regular recipe and my new extra crisp. Crispy. You extra crispy. I thought I said that. <coughs> now you have two kinds of Kentucky Fried Chicken to choose from. It's entirely different. Get every bit of finger licking good, you see. Oh, every bit of finger licking good. You see, I found a way to cook chicken deep down to get that real crispy crust some folks like. I better do that again, huh? Yes. Cut. You don't want me to sing, do you, for Christ's sake? We're rolling. This is the good one. Take five. Most, most folks, most, most folks, uh, most, most, most folks. All right, once again. Uh, most, most folks have heard about. All right, that's good. Good, very nice. That's why folks call it finger. That's why folks call it finger. Sounds good. That's why folks call call it finger licking good. That's why. That's that's why that's why folks call it that's why folks call it finger licking good. That's why that's why folks call it finger licking good. I'm not getting anywhere with this damn thing. Okay, fine. Oh dear, oh dear. Rough, rough day for the colonel. Coming up next is an interview with Davis Sedaris. Now, what do you say about Davis Sedaris? Well, in my case, I can tell you that his writing has meant a tremendous amount to me over the years. I think he's one of the best writers out there, not just of comedy or humor, but of anything. He can leap from emotion to emotion better than nearly all other writers. He's a very rare talent. His voice is completely unique. It's perhaps the most copied and influential voice for the page, certainly when it comes to humor in the past 25 years at least. If you see any book pitch out there for comedy, it usually begins, I describe my style as part Davis Sedaris and part whatever. His name is always coming up, and for good reason. Now, beyond his skills as a writer, he's an incredibly decent guy. I don't know many writers at David's level who is as good to his fans as he is. He will literally sign books for up to 10 hours and more. I think the record actually is 11 hours. Until every person literally wants a copy, a signed copy of his book, he will sit there and make personalized notes and autograph each of those books. I love the fact, too, that he emerged from out of Raleigh, North Carolina, a state that I used to spend a lot of time. I used to spend summers down in North Carolina. He was a kid who felt ostracized, and he made his way into the world doing the type of writing he wanted to do. This was never for money. This was for the love of writing. It was always in the style that he wanted. It's been much copied since, but this was a, this is a style that's very unique to him. I talked with David in his hotel room in Manhattan last week, and here is the interview. How nice it is of you to do this for me. I really, really appreciate it. You obviously have bigger things to be doing. I can't think of a bigger thing to do, but we've, we've never met. We've just talked on the phone and corresponded, so... Uh, I welcome the chance to, to meet you. Let me ask you this, and it, it's I bring this up for personal reasons. You mentioned in an interview that you don't drink anymore when you write. Why did you feel you needed to drink when you wrote, and how long ago was this? Oh, gosh. I started drinking and writing at just about the same time. I started writing, and then maybe about six months later, I started drinking. And I would write in the evening, so I never wrote anything without drinking. I just it was out of the question that I would and it just what that meant ultimately was that I had to I was like on a timer, you know, so I had to like put away a certain amount of booze and then at the end of it I was just so drunk that I couldn't even 
I couldn't even see straight. And so I, so I quit drinking. It was hard at first. I couldn't sit down at that same time. I thought, okay, I'll have to change the time that I write. So I started writing in the morning. And now I write in the morning, and then I go back to work at night. Now I don't think about it. I don't ever, you know, what the people drink, and, you know, I'm happy for them. I don't ever, I don't miss it. It never occurs to me. I think, I don't know if, if I'm a better writer now just because I'm older or if it's because I'm sober. When did you quit? I quit in 1999. Do you have anything to drink now? Nope. Nothing. Going on tour was hard because you got to get your booze together. You know, you'd be on a book tour or on a lecture tour and I never wanted to eat dinner you know, I wanted to drink before I ate dinner. You don't want to eat food and then drink because you're kind of wasting it. So it was just really complicated to be on tour and get all that stuff done. So I might not get back to the hotel room until midnight after the book signing. And then I would start drinking. And then I'd be ready for dinner like around, I don't know, two thirty, three in the morning. And then after dinner, it's time to get high. And then five o'clock, I have to get home. So it, it was difficult, when, especially when I was on tour. But you could always get, I mean, drugs. I mean, you can get anything you want on tour. You can, I always, if I have a problem with my computer, I stand up in front of the audience and I say, does anybody have like a MacBook Air? Does anybody come right to the front of the signing line if you can tell me? Or can anyone write me a prescription for antibiotics? Or who's got sleeping pills? Or uh, who's got painkillers? And the painkillers, I just wanted because I had kidney stones. And so I just wanted to have a lot of them in case I got a kidney stone on an airplane. Have you had a kidney stone before? No, but my father had it throughout his life. And it turned out to be one big one that kept breaking off. And it, it, the first one he got was on his honeymoon in the Bahamas. And he got a kidney stone? He got a kidney stone. And my mother saw him being wheeled out with the sheet over his head. And she thought he was dead, but that was just the Bahaman way of, I guess, wheeling someone to the airport. But that was his first one, and actually, I, I don't remember my father crying at all, really, except for this a few times when he had a kidney stone out of pain, which I, which was really upsetting for me as a kid. The pain of a kidney stone is really outstanding, and and you you want to believe that if you bend to your right and if you bend over completely then the pain will go away but it doesn't it doesn't matter what position you're in the last time i had a kidney stone i was on tour go back to the hotel room one o'clock in the morning wham and i know what it is the second that starts Ooh. so i'm in westchester so I, it's a holiday inn that i'm staying at and what, you, what is david stairs doing staying at a holiday inn? that's what i said and it didn't have an elevator I very slowly ease my way down the stairs. I say to the woman behind the checking desk, she's a young woman, she's a college student, reading a paperback book, can you call me a taxi to the hospital? So she called a taxi service, and they couldn't come. And I was completely white, and I was doubled over. But she said, I'll drive you to the hospital myself. Wow. And her car, oh. filthiest car. I, I mean, I opened the door to get in. And cans and bottles fell out. I hate that. Yeah, it's like uh, Red Fox's sitcom. <laughs> <laughs> but they'd give you this, this drug. What's a drug? 
it was, what was it? It wasn't Profol. That's what Michael Jackson died of. Right, but that's what I had for my colonoscopy. You had that for colonoscopy, really? Yeah, but that just, you just, you just disappear. Where do you go? I mean, you wake up on a cloud. I'm fascinated by that, where you can take a drug and the pain switches off. I've never taken drugs. Well, this is intravenous. Intravenous, they Mm -hmm. gave it to you. And they gave me this drug for the kidney stone. And then they said, on a scale from 1 to 10, where's your pain now? And I said, 6. I just wanted more. You could have come up with a higher number, though. Well, they didn't give it to me. First, they make you jump through all these hoops because they want to make sure that you're not just a drug seeker. And once they determined that you were in actual pain, they, they gave you the drugs. Yeah. I left the hospital. I think I got to the hospital at 2, and I think I left at 6. And I still had the kidney stone inside of me, but they gave me some um, anti-inflammatories, and they gave me some Percocet, I think, which I don't, I don't much care for. And I passed the kidney stone the next day. So when we spoke last, I think it was in 2009, first of all, we spoke for six hours. How nice was it for you to speak to someone you didn't know for six hours? That was amazing. But, I mean, you were you were doing interviews for your book. I mean, sometimes, you know how when a book comes out, you have interviews that you do, and a lot of them are, you know, half an hour long, and then somebody says, so what are your books like? I don't know. I mean, other times you're talking to somebody, and it's like, wow, it's great talking to this person. You know, so you say, I've got some more time. You don't necessarily go for six hours, but, I mean. It was so sweet. And when we ended, it was, I think, 9 o'clock my time, which must have been, 1, 2 a.m. your time. So when we talked, I mentioned this briefly, and it didn't make the final interview, but I wanted to ask you about it. You wrote a script for Seinfeld. Oh, no, I didn't write the script. It was, was it Larry Charles, I think, called me. This is like years ago, when I just started on the radio, and asked if I would be interested in writing, if I'd ever thought about writing for television, or if I'd ever, what, what I thought of Seinfeld. I'd never seen the show. And so I watched the show, and then I got back to him. I said, well, I got one idea. It was Elaine had a dog that had like a, I'd seen a dog on the street with a huge testicle, mm-hmm. huge, like it had some kind of disease. And so the testicle was so big that it had to like drag on the ground. It had scabs on it. And I was thinking, you couldn't look at this dog without wincing. If you were a guy, if you were a woman, Maybe you wouldn't take it that hard, but if you were gone, you couldn't look at it without wincing. And so, what did I decide is that she went to a, th- Elaine went to a therapist, and her therapist wanted her to give the dog away to somebody. I don't know how I got that. It's a great idea for a sitcom episode. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't, I was perfectly happy doing what I was doing, so it wasn't, so I wasn't disappointed or anything when they said, well, you know that's going to work because it was never my dream to write for television and you know there was so there was really no harm done I watched it once and I had a sincere idea I wasn't trying to think oh what is what would he like to hear what will get me in the door because that was just an initial phone call so there's no telling that doesn't mean necessarily that they would have said you're hired well that's one of the things I love about you is that your interest in writing for print only is so strong that it doesn't seem like you have an interest in writing for TV or movies. Is that is that the case? Yeah. No, I don't. No, 
I don't. I mean, my sister had a sketch comedy show for a while, and so I wrote some sketches. You know, like one of the sketches that I wrote for that show. It's people on an airplane. Then the pilot comes on and says that we've had a mechanical failure and we're going to crash into the ocean. But in the meantime, all drinks are half price. And then the first person who wants a drink wants one of those complicated blender drinks sure. and then pays for a tw- pays with a twenty. And the flight attendant doesn't have change. And then you find out well, Stephen Colbert lost like several family members in a plane crash. So it's like a little okay, ticklish. Scratch that. And he idea. was on that show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as the TV experience goes, I guess that was a pretty easy one. You know, you would write sketches and then somebody would say, yeah, we'll take this and this and not this. But I just did it with Amy and kind of like she asked me to, but it wasn't my thing. It's easier to write a two-hour play than it is to write a really? so two-minute sketch, don't you think? I've never written a two-hour play. I know you, I mean, I've seen a few that you've done. And you've mentioned that Santa Land was, was the worst mistake that you've ever made to make into a play. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But why, why, why is that? I, I, it, because it's not worthy of being a play. It was just, and I, I didn't realize that by letting them do it, that was allowing them to license it. So it's done all over the country. Joe Mantello directed it, and he said, would you write something to go here and here? And so I wrote, like, three lines, and, I, and then he gets half the royalties for adapting it. But that's interesting um, when you say it's easier to write a two-hour play because that's what you want to do in your own voice, that you're not writing it for someone else. No, I think it's easier to write a two-hour play that has an ending that works than it is to write a sketch that it's just really hard to have a, an ending to a sketch that doesn't have people win- leave people wincing. You know, it can be it can be funny and captivating, but then it ends and you're like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, so often they don't end, they just kind of stop. I remember at Second City they would turn the lights out, and it's like, so then you could kind of wince in the dark if you needed to. Right, like my love life. If <laughs> you needed to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just hard to write like a brief sketch that but it's funny how many people who are especially young writers want to do that they want to write sketches and to me i agree with you it's very limiting because there's only so many ways you can end it i didn't remember there were so many sketches that i would work on you know they seem to be going great and it's like okay time to wind this up and you just it didn't it wasn't like writing an essay where the essay tells you when it's ready to to, to end. And with a sketch like that, often you don't have time to develop the characters or you don't have time to make the audience feel for them in the way that you would like for them to. Because before you know it, it's time to end it. So I don't know. It just wasn't my thing. But, you know, the people were all lovely. You know, like everybody on the show was lovely and all the people who worked on it. So it, it, was, a, it was as good as experience as I was going to have. The reason I love writing for print is it's total control, but there is a limit to how much you get paid for print. You yeah. have total control, but you don't get the money you might potentially get in Hollywood. It never occurred to me when I started writing that I would ever make a living off of it. It was never, it was never part of it for me. I mean, I wanted to have a book, and I wanted to, people to... You know, I wanted some kind of an audience, 
But if I had to have a job all during the day and then come home at night and do that, that was fine with me. I never, I never, I never confused those two things. Making money at it with success. I mean, I remember when they, my first book, well, for two books, Baby Bear Fever and Naked, it was $50,000. And I never thought that I would have that much money in my life. And you've talked about the fact that you prefer being busy all day that you want to be tired when you write. Well, like when I come home at night, I think it must be hard to have a job where you sit at a desk all day and then you come home and you sit at your own desk and you think, okay, now it's time to do my own work. I think it's easier if you're on foot. I mean, you're only good for so many hours. So I get up and then, I don't know, maybe I work for like three hours and then I go, I go pick up garbage on the side of the road for anywhere from like four to ten hours, depending on the ten season. hours. No, it depends. It... Like in the summertime, you can get ten hours in. You know, obviously this time of year, it's hard to because it, when I go home to England, it'll be dark by four thirty. But I walked nineteen and a half miles yesterday. That's crazy. I mean, that's dangerous. Not really. I mean, if you walk facing traffic, and there was, I wasn't like in England. If you're walking off road. It just there's briars everywhere and often it's tall grass and it's not but this was like short grass and there was plenty of verge no one dangerous is that the obsessive part of your life where you feel you need to pick up garbage yeah it's cleaning and then also like i had a friend who went to dubai we met in dubai a couple of years ago because i had to go to australia for something and then it they had a Qantas had a thing that you could stop in Dubai and it wouldn't cost you any extra. So I said to Dawn, let's meet in Dubai. And she had a Fitbit and I'd never seen one before. And she explained to me what it was. And so I got one. I can't tell you how many, how many times I signed books for people and they say, oh, you have a Fitbit. I have one too. And I'm completely obsessed with it. And I say, oh, really? Where is it? Oh, it's at home. And I'm thinking, then you're not obsessed with it. I've never left mine at home. When my family goes to the beach for Thanksgiving, we have spa night. Amy and my niece give us give everyone facials, and then my sister-in-law gives you a, a complete foot rub, and so you soak your feet in, in this bubbling tub, and then she takes her, your feet in her hands, and she massages them with oils and oh, stuff. Nice. And it just feels weird because it's your sister-in-law. But uh, one of my toenails just fell. Just fell straight off. <laughs> fell straight off. <laughs> You're like Jesus in the it desert like is wandering. Fourth toenail that I've lost. And that's that's from funny. walking too much. Because yeah. I am obsessive and I like to walk. It soothes my mind. Is that what happens with you? I mean, well, I don't like being alone with my thoughts. You know, it's not good for me to be alone with my thoughts for over a certain amount of time. So I listen to books on tape and I listen to podcasts. And what is it that you're afraid of? with your thoughts. I cannot, like, my boyfriend was saying something to this uh, the other day. Oh, he's like, well, why do you let that go? It's like, you, I, I would if I could. I'm still nursing grudges from what somebody said to me in the fifth grade. I mean, I'm still really? working on that. Like, I can't, wow. when I have any kind of a disagreement with somebody, I think, well, there goes two weeks sleep right there. And then, untold hours embroidering it you know walking along thinking about it my my brother-in-law scolded me at the beach last week 
My father doesn't like to curse in front of people, so he'll say, GD it. That's goddamn it, right? And so my brother-in-law GD'd me. But he's the kind of guy who, I don't know, 15 minutes later, he was just completely normal. It was kind of great. So I don't embroider that, and I just kind of let that go. Well, it's, I've known him forever. So that's like a family-type situation, which is diff- a little bit different, and depending on the family member. Did he let you go? Did you let him go? I mean, will you be thinking about the G-Ding for a while? That I was able to let go. But there are other, you know, things. I don't know if somebody does you wrong. or I was at the airport not long ago, and I go to my gate, and then I realize... Oh no, it's one of those distant gates. Mm-hmm. So I have to take a bus and it's time to board. And I think I'm in San Francisco. So I go downstairs and the bus is full. But then they say, is anybody going to Reno? And I'm going to Reno. And so they let me on the bus because I'm going to Reno. So I get on the bus and there are a lot of people on it. And I stand kind of near the front of the bus because I think, well, that's the only door. And so when we get there, I can get off fast. And this guy taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, move back. And he's just a guy. He doesn't work for the airline. And I do. I go back because I think, well, I'm being an asshole by being at the front of the bus. And that would bother me if I saw somebody doing it. So it's only fair, right? He caught me being an asshole. And the least I can do is move back. But I wanted to say to him, you're not the boss of me. No one's the boss of you. (laughs) <laughs> and I just thought about it for days. Well, I wanted to say to him, how do you do that? How do you do that? Where do you get the balls to come off talking to people like that? Because I want to go up to people all the time and say, hey, get your feet off that. Get your feet get off your my feet lap. Off the- <laughs> <laughs> Stop touching my dick with your feet. <laughs> and your chin. And your chin, right. Take off that lobster bib and stop touching my dick with your chin. But you know what? I'm the same way. Like, there are things that happen in junior, mostly it's junior high school, that I think about. And there are conversations that took place where I now answer them as an adult. Bothers me to this day. And it's usually about women or girls at that age who I was too shy to say anything to. And they talked to me and I clammed up. Huh. And I'm constantly replaying that in my mind in high school, too. What would I say to them now with my knowledge if I were to go back and I would be 14 years old again? But I think about that, and it, I wonder why. I mean, am I hardwired to think about stuff that happened at that age more so than something that happened a year ago? A lot of times I, I mean, when I'm signing books, I'll meet kids who are like in the seventh grade, and I always wonder, I always assume it's as awful for them as it was for me, that the worst that life has for you you're going to have to deal with it when you're 13 or 14 years old. Like when you really don't have any skills at all for handling that kind of thing. I'm thinking about that a lot. Just that that was the worst that it was. Do you think your life would have been different if you had grown up with the internet? Would your sensibility, would your writing sensibility have been It would different? have been different just because pre-internet, like at that time, there were no books in the library. That, I mean, I remember thinking I was the only gay person. There was nobody to talk about it. Now you could look and you could say, oh, there's tons of people. You're not the only gay person. But I wonder, too, I felt very, very alone as a kid. I wasn't gay, but I had OCD and depression and anxiety. 
it's hard to express to people who did grow up with the internet how lonely it could be. But I'm wondering too if that sort of if that hardwired me to become a certain type of person, and if it, if it hardwired me to become a writer. I wonder that same thing. I mean, I, I never learned to drive because I was convinced that I was going to uh, kill a child, right? So I took driver's ed, and then I just remember going out. I had my permit for a while. Driving a car was just the absolute worst, every second of it. So I didn't get my license. And in North Carolina, you kind of needed a license, and if you didn't, you just had to stay home. So I stayed home. And I learned to entertain myself. So I often think if I had an, if I wasn't afraid to drive, what I would have just been out there, and I just would have been sitting at home, and I would have thought, oh, this is boring, and I would have gotten in the car, and I would have driven to Chapel Hill, and I don't know. But instead, I was like, okay, yeah, this is boring, but I'm stuck here, so I guess I'll trace those drawings. I find so amazing. Now, if you're starting off now, you can be published on the NewYorker.com if you're 14 years old and living in, in Oklahoma. I mean, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you can, there's an in now. And I didn't feel that there was an in when I was first starting. When I moved to New York, I took a class at the Y called Writing Funny. Who taught, taught by it? a woman named Frida Garmaze, who was a Saturday columnist, well, I guess you call it columnist, for all things considered, a British woman. And I always thought she was funny. And I, so I'd sign up for the class. And it was interesting to me that none of my, my other classmates didn't seem to know who she was. And to me, she was huge. Um, and I remember the first day she said, what are the rules for writing humor? And I said, uh, I raised my hand and I said, you should never make fun of someone who has less power than you. And she said, where on earth did you get that idea? She said, it's ridiculous. She said, the only <laughs> rule is to take all taste and decency and throw it out the window. And so I always remembered that because people always want to come up with new rules, right? Yeah. Like come up, and, and it's like, I'm sorry, you just came up with that. Well, it's not a rule. You came up with it and you decided that people shouldn't do that. Have you noticed that lately? Yes, like, I I've have. been noticing with when writers are interviewed, so many of the questions are, oh, I heard it was a novelist who had based a character on... A dead relative and so the questions were was that ethically pure did you have the right to base a character on they would never have asked that question like five ten twenty years no. ago did you see that interview with uh, CNN was interviewing Joan Rivers because Joan Rivers had a new book out it was just before she died and and the woman was asked Joan Rivers' questions is if, oh, she started off by saying, oh, aren't you mean? And why did you wear a fur coat on the cover of your book? It's incredible. And Joan Rivers just ripped the microphone off and said, you know what, I'm, I'm not doing this. You should not be interviewing somebody who writes humor. You should, shouldn't be doing it. I'm not doing this anymore. And then the woman had this look on her face, like, really? You know that look, that smile people get when smile it's like they want it to mean oh it's just kind of joking but what it means is this is the kind of asshole i am right which which she was wearing that expression the entire and she doesn't know she's an asshole i i've completely i've, I've noticed that a lot and <laughs> a 
bad assholes. But there's a lot of questions about, is, is it okay for you to have done that? Is it okay for you have, to have made fun of, of, of such and such? And I find it very strange. When you look at the pieces that Doug Kenny wrote, Michael O'Donoghue wrote, they were obviously, the lodestar was towards goodness, but those couldn't have been published now. You know, to make fun of, you know, the Vietnamese baby book that made fun of the craziness, the madness of, of the Vietnam War that Michael O'Donoghue wrote in the 70s, he would now be accused of exactly what he was trying to satirize. Mm-hmm. Now, who are you to make fun of, of a Vietnamese baby with no legs? And the whole point is that the war was crazy. So why, why couldn't he have made fun of that? But I, I do notice a lot from readers, why would you do that? And who are you to do that? And don't you know that you can't do that? That's the, when, when they say, don't you know that you can't do that? I want to say, like, I'm sorry, there's not a rule book. Like, you're making that rule up. I don't have to follow it. It's not, it's not written down. You don't understand. Like, there, it's, not like, it's not like driving. But there is a rule book that, that writers know instinctively. If you write something, you know that your heart is in the right place, right? Yeah, I look, I look inside myself and say, okay, what was I doing here? Was I trying to get away with something? Was I, uh, I wrote a thing years ago. I, I, I'd been looking to buy an apartment in Paris. And, you know, we were looking at real estate. Then you start looking at everything as if it's real estate. You know, would, I, would it be legal to put windows on the side of the building? In the midst of that, I went to the Anne Frank house, which is a triplex apartment in the middle of Amsterdam. It's a fantastic location. It's a beautiful, adorable apartment. Cozy, I was just very thinking, cozy. I'll take it. And it was, I wrote about it. It was in the New Yorker. And then I recorded it uh, for the BBC, a, a, a radio show on the BBC called Meet David Sidaris. I mispronounced my name on my own radio show. I recorded it live, and then these two young people came up and said, we're offended. Who do we talk to? We can talk to anybody here, but I guarantee you nobody, nobody gives a fuck. But I, when I looked at myself, it's like, no, I wasn't making fun of the Holocaust. No, I wasn't making fun of, I was talking about, what, it was about looking at real estate and then looking at everything as real estate. And it's so ridiculous then to look at the Anne Frank house as real estate. But I, yeah, I think sometimes people can't get past I don't know. I guess the game pieces. Well, that, that's the thing. It, it, uh, there's a sensibility now where if someone is offended, they have to tell you about it. And not only do they have to tell you about it, but you have to be, you have to take that very seriously. Right. You have to give them your attention. And that's new that you have to give them your so attention. Where does that come from? I don't get it. Where if someone is offended by something you wrote, and this has happened to me, you have to call them back. You have to respect the fact they don't like it. To such a degree as you have to take time out of your day. I, I never would have thought that as a kid. If I was offended, by, and I was offended by plenty of things, you know, the stupidity of, of certain comic strips or sitcoms. If I, I never would have written to anyone. I never would have, never would have expected anyone to, to get back to me. But now there's such an expectation for, for such respect. Like I did a show in Canada and I wrote this thing because I went to China. And I never liked Chinese food. And then I went to China and I really didn't like Chinese food. So I read about it in Canada. This woman said I was being racist. So the producer of the show had to respond to her. By law, had to respond. I didn't have anything to do with it. He responded to her. But I think that's part of it. Is it right that people 
they want to sit down. You need to hear about their pain. You need to hear about how they're offended. No, I don't think so. I mean, they can write a letter and then you either read it or you don't. I mean, sometimes in that Chinese, Chinese food story, um, I went to a, a restaurant where they there's a cauldron in the middle of the table, a bubbling cauldron. And then you order ingredients to put into the cauldron, right? So this woman, this British woman was there. And she's like, I don't know, in her late 50s, college professor. And she said, when I got there, she said, I took the liberty of ordering us some duck tongues. And you can look here and see what else you want. And so I mean, she was testing me, right? And in the essay I wrote that I looked at her and I thought, you whore, right? And... And I don't usually don't examine stuff like this too hard, but I think the reason it got a nice laugh is because she wasn't a whore. You know, she's, you, you know that she's like a college professor who's in her 60s. And so it was just, the word was surprising because it doesn't fit, right? So I read that and this young woman came up and said, you know, when you call a woman a whore, you're calling all women whores. I, I was shaking when she left the table. I was so... Well, you think she was making fun of you? You think she was taking advantage? She was trying to, to put you down? The woman, no, she was, she was like a college, she, that's what she'd been taught in college, that if you're calling one woman a boy, you're calling all women. Oh, I see, I like, thought you meant, okay. But anyway, she wrote me a letter a couple months later and said, said, actually, I'm sorry about that. And I wrote her back and I said, God, I've been thinking about you so, oh. I think about you so often. But then I wrote this it's a monologue. It's a woman talking to her daughter through a closed door. So it's a one-way conversation. And it's the mother saying, are you in there? I know you're in there. I know you're upset about the shoot. It was like the woman had gotten her maid, Sasha Tiba, to perform a clitoridectomy on her daughter, on her teenage daughter, because she wanted to steal her daughter's boyfriend. And I would read it every night, and I would think, I'm not sure about this. Like, I would think, I I knew, I just wasn't sure about it. I mean, it wasn't like the, sometimes you read something and you feel, okay, I feel really secure in my motives for this. I feel, because I part of me felt like I was kind of getting away with something. I think the problem was it just wasn't funny enough. But this woman came up and she said, um, and she said, you know, I was at your show and then I left. And then I came back and I stood in line to tell you how much I don't like that. And, and, and I listened to her, and she was right, you know? She was like, wow, you really put your finger on. I was unable to put my finger on what was wrong with it, but she really put her finger on it. And I really was grateful afterwards. I was grateful that she returned and that she stood in line, and I was grateful that I had my open sign out. You know, I wasn't going to be closed off I don't want to be that person. I don't want to just be closed. And if you have a problem with something, then fuck you. I don't want to hear it. And I think there was a difference, too, in how she approached me. And, you know, I don't get offended. I don't get offended. Like, if you were to do a stand-up act and your whole act was making fun of gay people and calling them fags and stuff, I don't know that offended is the word that I would use. I don't know. I just don't use that word a lot. I... I but when somebody comes to me and then says, you really offended me by such and such, then I get the idea that they're offended by a lot of things. And so I tend to close down or shut those doors. 
what, what was your satirical purpose for the for that piece? Uh, to me, it almost sounds like a slash and burn piece that Michael O'Donohue would have written in the early '70s, which certainly you, you couldn't get away with now. But you were you were attempting to make a point about what? I mean, you didn't write I think that. That was it. That my point wasn't anything except how horrible this woman was. You know that she was doing this. And it's slowly revealed, her motives are slowly revealed throughout the course of this very... And I, and I just kind of like that apologetic tone in the one-way conversation to a door. And I, I, I still want to write something that would work. See, to me, that would, that would imply you were satirizing a, a, a mother's attempt to desexualize her daughter, to, to take control of her daughter. She's talking through a door... Her daughter may be listening. Her daughter may not be listening. But this is this is a woman who is attempting. It's, it's all about control. Yeah. So but to it me, it makes sense. A, it just wasn't. It was like a stick that wasn't sharp enough. But that doesn't mean that your your viewpoint wasn't in in a positive direction. It may not have worked comedically or in a satirical sense. But that doesn't mean that you were doing it in a hurtful sense. It needs to work. You know, you need to. I mean, there's certain people who were, like with that Anne Frank story, those kids who came up and said, you know, we're offended. I thought, well, it was in the New Yorker. I'm sorry. But if it, and, and if it, I, I, I got the sense that they weren't, I don't know, they weren't thinking it through. I feel like there was nothing I could do for, there was nothing I could do for them. But the the bottom line with this was that it just wasn't, it just wasn't good enough. Okay, but um, that's not a moral judgment. That that's a technical judgment that you couldn't pull it off. But if someone's offended by it, that almost implies that you set out to write an offensive piece, which you didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't set out to write an offensive piece. I just thought I just love terrible people. I mean, I don't love them in person, but I mean, I love imagining them, and I love. What's wrong with that? I mean, terrible. And you write about yourself, especially. But I see nothing wrong with with trying to attempt something, whether you achieve it or not, is a different story. But to be offended by it, that that's, and not just offended by it, but it shouldn't exist, and that's what bothers me. Well, I think when a lot of people hear about female genital mutilation, they think of, you know, Africa where it's done, and so it immediately gets tied in with that, whereas this was like upper-middle-class woman. She got her maid to perform it well, with Rusty, the lid of a Rusty cat who can't. You didn't tell me that. So this is elective <laughs> surgery with, 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 with a cat food can. Yeah. All right, now I'm offended. <laughs> <laughs> David, you're sick. But, I, but like, oh, like I said, I was glad that that woman, young woman came up and... And I, I heard her. I heard her. It was, it was the best that that can be. But will that prevent you like, from trying things in the future? No, 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 no. No, it, not at all. But there was something I kept wondering, like, what is it about this story? Like, what are my feelings here? And she just put her finger on it. Like, just like a good editor would put their finger and on what, it. What was her, say, what was it? That I didn't have enough of a point. And that it was mainly existing for shock value, and that wasn't reason enough. And she was completely right. That doesn't mean I can't 
turn back to it a month from now and say, oh, here it is. You know how that is. You put sure. something away and it's just not working out for you and then you put it away and then you pull it out a month later and you say, oh, I see that exactly. So you, it's a work in progress. But, I, but at the same time, I don't want to... Like if I do a reading and I sit down, I sign books for five hours. I guarantee you. No one, no one ever says, they might say, oh, I like the reading, but they would never say, oh, I liked that line in that story, or I liked that second story, or I liked, it's never mentioned. And I, I never ask them about it because I think, well, that would just be weird and they're not going to be honest with me anyway. But I feel like when I go to a friend's reading, or if a friend has a book out, I write them a letter about their book and what I liked in their book. And and then I just noticed one day that like people don't do that, you know. Do you say, want them to do oh, that? Oh, I liked it. Well, I just it just seems like good manners to me. I mean, if it's a friend of yours who. But if someone's in the audience and they're not a writer, and they listen to you on NPR and they, they come up to you afterwards and just say, "I love what you did." That wouldn't mean as much to you as if they were coming at it from almost a writer's standpoint, saying, I loved that second story. I loved the way that you segued from this scene. Right. To I would scene. change the subject if they said either of those things, you know, because I would be uncomfortable with it. But I would appreciate the attempt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, don't, I just don't know. Are they? But then I have a former, someone, someone said to me a while ago, oh, no, they're just, they're not, of course they're not going to say that to you because they're going to think that they're being inarticulate or that you've heard it a million times or I'm not asking for it. I just think that it's weird. But but then at the same time, like when I go to book signings, right, I stand in that line and I think, what am I going to say? Everything I've said, you know, everything I could say he's heard a million times. So you stand in book lines for book signings? Sure. Filled with anxiety about what I'm going to do when my when it's my turn. And so I feel like everyone is me. And so when they get up there, I just take it away from them. And I say, how many abortions have you had? Well, that's what I have noticed about you. Is like, there are a lot of writers who don't remember what it was like to be waiting in line. And you remember what it was like to wait in line. In fact, you, t you talked recently about someone that you wrote to and that you were a big fan of, a writer, and he introduced you. This is a number of years ago. Mm. Can you tell us who that was? You said you were a big fan of this person. Tobias Wolf. So you got in touch with Tobias Wolf. I always loved Tobias Wolf. I just think he's America's greatest short story writer. You know, like if you try to copy, you know, as a young writer, you try to copy people. And so, like, he uses certain words he uses a lot. You know, like fellow. He uses the word fellow a lot. So... I think it would be possible to mimic his sentence structure and to learn what words he would use and what words he couldn't. But you couldn't fake a Tobias Wolf story because you couldn't have. No one has his humanity. No one has his. No one is decent in the way that he is. George Saunders wrote a beautiful thing in the New Yorker about. I guess it's an essay that he wrote for a book that's about mentors talks about Tobias Wolf in the book. Anyway, worship Tobias Wolf. I had a friend who was teaching at Syracuse when he was teaching there. I had a friend who was teaching photography, someone I went to art school with. And she said, oh, Toby. She called him Toby. She said, he's having his big fall bash next weekend. Why don't you come up? Took the bus. We 
we go into Tobias Walt's house. I cannot believe I'm in Tobias Walt's house. I, I must have sounded like the biggest moron, you know. I just plus in order to be like it was mainly people from this church, and they were just maybe would have a half a beer and stuff. I was a and then I went out in the parking lot and got high. I mean, the driveway and got high. I was loaded, right? Because you were scared? Yeah. Anyway, he, nice as he can be. Three weeks later, he comes to New York to the Upper West Side. He has a book come out. And I'm standing in line. He says, David. You remembered. He remembered my name. And then everyone turned on like they thought that we were friends. Wow. That is like such like a kind thing so then he started teaching at Stanford and then I went to Stanford I mean I was there doing a lecture event and my agent called and said Tobias Wolf is going to introduce you and I thought what kind of world am I living in Tobias Wolf and then I found out that my lecture agent asked Tobias Wolf to introduce me so then it ruins everything because then like I'm making Tobias Wolf work well, he, he could have easily said no. So I, he respects your work. Well, anyway, he, he uh, you know, there are days and he's the reason I don't kill myself. Because what if you killed yourself and he had a story in the New Yorker the next week? Are, are you suicidal? No. <laughs> okay. Le okay, let's say, okay, you had the opportunity to... Poke your eyes out with needles. I wouldn't do that. I would kill myself first. What I mean is, I, I need to live. I like living in a world that he is in. Presumably. I think that's a good way to live. Uh, sometimes I wonder, I don't even know if I should get into this, but what is the use? And, and it does come to art. It does come to... Not necessarily a, a short story by Tobias Wolf, but a new song or a new short story or an essay that uh, that talks to me in a certain way. My boyfriend is the kind of person who, he's a painter. Anything with a brush he can do. But he'll go to an exhibit and he'll come home and he'll say, I can't paint. And I've never, I don't understand that because I've never felt that way. Like... Tobias Wolf, I'll never, I'll never, I'm, I'm not worthy of touching the hem of his garment. I'll never write anything as good as the worst thing that he ever wrote. But I'm not comparing myself to him. Why would I do that? I'm just grateful that someone in the world can write like that. It just gives me hope. That's, I guess that's, that's art. You don't get jealous of it. You just let its light shine on you and it gets you out of bed in the morning and it, it it's just beautiful that you live in a world with that person in it. So one of the things that I love about you, and I don't think a lot of people realize this, is just how hard you work at writing. And I know a lot of people who want to write, but they don't write. So even someone of your caliber who is so talented and technically has the chops this is something you work at every day. I mean, I don't think I work any harder than a lot of other people. You know, I often notice that when I'm, let's say when I'm signing books and I meet somebody and it's like, well, they want to write too. And it's like, well, did you write today? No. Did you write last week? No. But that's like when people ask you, like, what inspires you? It's like, 
you know that that was in a letter that David Foster Wallace, that Don DeLillo wrote to David Foster Wallace, you know, he was talking about that question. He was saying that inspiration is for amateurs. You know, you just get up and you go to your desk. And, you know, that said, when you're writing humor, you know, I, I live to find something ridiculous. I mean, I live to go out into the world and just see something that's, that, 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 that doesn't get any better than that, to find have the ridiculous present itself to you. That's, I guess I would say that. This is the everyday. This is not big life events. This is going out and, and someone telling you that they defecated a button. Yeah. I love that too. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's the joy in finding that, right? In yeah. finding a turn of phrase or, or finding... I mean, what are the odds that, that you're going to invent something? What are the odds that you're going to invent a joke? What are the odds that you're going to... A couple of years ago, I remember I wrote in my diary that I thought that the Washington Redskins should keep their name but change their logo to either a Redskin peanut or a Redskin potato, right? Now, to my mind, I made that up, but somebody else could have that in their act. I mean, it, it seems pretty obvious. It seems a pretty obvious thing to me. Well, you know what? It It isn't, though. I mean, because you made the connection that others... I mean, a, a no, four billion perfect. people didn't make that connection. But it really would be perfect. It, it would because be. Because that would say to people, fan. sorry, we get to keep our neck that is a redskin peanut, and it's called a redskin peanut for a reason. But then the, the, the consequence is that they'd have to have a peanut, like for their football team. And how great would the mascot be? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, you're making these connections that, yeah, four billion other people could have, but no one did. So here you come along, and you're working at it. If you weren't working at it that day, would you have made that connection? If you were just watching TV, if you're watching reruns of MASH, would you have made that connection? Well, then maybe they would have found something else by watching reruns of MASH. You know how it is. You just have to be on, be aware, you know, of the world around you. Which is can be tiring. It can be exhausting. Well, but I find that once something becomes normal, like when I first started tour, I write in my diary, and it's like I'll write pages and pages about people who I sign books for. But then that becomes kind of normal after a while, and then toward the end of the tour, you wouldn't even really know that I'd signed books unless, you know, usually there's one favorite person. You know, so I'm right about that favorite person, or maybe somebody had an outstanding name. If you worked at the airport, I always thought, like, I'd love to work TSA. I said to a guy who's patting me down the other day, I bet you touch a lot of colostomy bags, don't you? Yeah. It, it was a slow day at the airport. I mean, he could have given me some information there. He said it, yeah, sometimes. Then I thought, well, does everyone ask him that? Does everyone ask him? <laughs> yes, everyone. That's a question I would have thought. Like, how do you know? Like, could he feel how full it was? Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, imagine. But that's... I mean, I, I wonder too. I mean, I bet you're surprised a lot by who has a colostomy bag. You think you think we'd be shocked if we walked down the street yeah. and we saw? Really? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I always worry that I'm going to wind up having one because I've been making fun of them all my life. So I think it's my nightmare. fate to have a colostomy bag. 
Well, it'd be a fancy one, like like Gucci. <laughs> <laughs> Can Maybe, you do a leather cloth me then? Or a, or a bootleg one from Chinatown, like a fake polo. No, it would be Poochie. <laughs> <laughs> you like my Poochie? <laughs> God, I tell you, it'd be hard to date with that. You know, it's hard enough to date without colostomy bags, but... I know, when do you reveal... It would have to be, I would come straight out, and I would have it on my profile. I'd say, listen, you know, good sense of humor, like to read, have a colostomy bag. It would be right there. I wouldn't wait. I don't want, I don't want, you want you want someone who's going to be okay with that when you are getting intimate. You don't want someone to walk. How bad would you feel if, if someone just saw your bag and thought, and just left. Well, years ago, I met this guy, and it's the only time I've ever done this because I always, you know, at least would meet somebody in a bar, you know. But I met a guy at the laundromat. It turned out his penis was like you took the penis off a newborn baby. What do you mean it turned out? So it turned out that you you, you saw this. You, you were yeah, yeah yeah. We so we we we. It turned out. <laughs> I reached down there, and I think. I'm not really feeling anything. And then it turns out that that's... And so I thought, well, I have to play through. But I think a lot of people hadn't played through. And so this oh, was in the so days before guy. answering machines. So you had to... You had to play it through. You, well, that, that's like... Then you're telling all your friends when you call, let it ring three times and then hang up and then call again. Right. And I felt bad. Like I just... And it wasn't... It would have been different, let's say, if we got to know each other. And then I thought, well, you know what? I'm such a great guy that I'm sure we can find a way to make this work. But because I'd, I just had met him in a So we'd known each other for like 20 minutes. So I felt... But you played through... What does that mean? Like, So this is a little mushroom you'd find in, in like an omelet at Marriott. Yeah. So you played through. And what? how do you play through that? Oh, what does that mean? That's... You pretend that it's not like a mushroom that you found in the Marriott. You pretend. <laughs> See, heterosexual men don't have this problem because it's not like we would find a woman and her clitoris was the size of a pea or a chiclet. It doesn't matter to us. But this, this is, is, is that a big thing in the gay world? If, if you go down on someone and they have a, a penis the size of, of a mush, an omelet mushroom, does that bring things to a stop? Yeah. I mean... Because there's nothing, I mean, I don't even know how he could grip it to masturbate. Did you ask him? No. I mean, because it seemed, the polite thing seemed to be like, to just pretend that there was nothing. So you pretended wrong, that, nothing that it was okay. So how did you grip it? I don't remember. I mean, I'm not being modest. I, I honestly don't remember. You're no hero. Oh, it could have been one of those ones where you rub somebody, you know, you, you rub against somebody. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, and this was years ago, you said that when you were a teacher at the Art Institute, you said you could you could still recall individual lines from one of your students' short stories. And you said, she invented a world that's all her own, and I can't think of any more, of anyone more deserving of an audience. And I think her name is Cindy House. Uh-huh, yeah. So whatever it became a Cindy House. I just heard from her again recently. She decided to go to graduate school. And so she's in graduate school now. 
You kept in touch with her. Oh, yeah. We only stayed in touch. And it's interesting because I always said to her, well, send me what you're working on. Because I just love to read her stuff. And so it's different now because she's in school and she has teachers and stuff. And so she still sends me things. But I am i don't comment on them because, you know, that she's got a teacher and you don't want to. She doesn't need it. She doesn't need it. I mean, I think she... She's a remarkable writer, and I feel like almost like the tables have turned. You know, she'll come, I'll do a reading, and she'll come to it. And if I say, what's wrong with that thing that I read? She'll say, this, 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 and this. And it's like, wham, finger out of every single time. She's so, she's so bright and so astute that way. And she would like to teach, and she'd be a fantastic teacher. What made her writing so individual? individualistic that you remembered it. I mean, what was it about it that she invented a world? For starters, she was one of the few students that I had who had really ever really read a short story. She knew what was inside of a book. I mean, a lot of times students would turn things in and I realized, oh, they think this is what you would find in a book. But they don't know that you would never find this in a book because they haven't opened enough of them. And she... You know, maybe she was writing about her, you know, basing her fiction on her own life, but it was it was believable. Like, I believed that character. I believed, and I learned things. I, even now, I learn things reading her stories, and I feel like a fool in a way. She would write a story about somebody who was, let's say, going to somebody's, pulling a scam on somebody, to get money for drugs. Like it wouldn't occur to me that that person had aspirations or that that person knew who Joyce Carol Oates is or that that person loved somebody. And how rare was that? Her. So, I mean, this really was... Really rare. I mean, because I think a lot of times what people know, they don't either don't know how to impart it or they don't think that it's worthy. I mean, most of my students at the time, and again, this was an art school, so it wasn't like they were writing majors, but they were ashamed of their lives. They were, it's only, it's, it's, it's only poor people and rich people aren't ashamed. It's middle class people who are ashamed. And they feel, you hear it all the time, well, I just lived in this white bread neighborhood and suburbs and stuff. Like they feel like so cheated, like they have no story to tell because you know, because they're middle class and from the suburbs. And it was interesting to realize that they were ashamed of their lives. And, and poor people would be like, please give me that life. I'll take it. You know, give anything for that life. Do you think status is a new thing too you can criticize? Like who are you to say that you feel pain because you grew up upper middle class? Yeah. No, but I think that that's so naive though. People to think that, you know, if you were middle class, then... You're not going to be hurt by certain things. And the thing is, too, now we hear everything because you can get in touch with anyone. Right. You never would have heard it before. I mean, you know, the, the best way to complain always is to get people to laugh. A couple of years ago, I was giving out condoms to teenagers, you know, because I like to have little something. I always have a gift for a teenager. So my lecture agent called me one day and said, I got a really angry letter from this woman, and she's just crazy. She said that she came to your show with her 16-year-old daughter 
and that you gave the daughter a condom. But you told her you did not want to be responsible for her losing her virginity so she could only use it for anal sex. And I said, oh, I remember her. <laughs> and the mother was furious. But it's like, that is so over come on, the top. Come on. That is so over the top. How can you get angry about you that? You can't get angry about someone popping their behind them, right? But when <laughs> a woman came to me uh, a couple weeks ago, I was signing books, and she had a 10-year-old daughter. And I, you know, I started talking to the daughter, and I found out she's 10, and I said, I have something for you. And the mother said, don't you dare give her a condom. Like, do I really need you to tell me not to give a ten-year-old girl a condom? You know, so what'd you get? I had a butt plug. Well, a dildo. Yeah. Luckily, I had a butt plug. <laughs> <laughs> That's a thing. I mean, I don't know any author of your caliber who spends as much time and is as nice to their readers as you are. And the fact that you get criticized, I it would be very hurtful to me that you know if, if after spending six and a half hours of talking to everyone. Someone's going to write in a letter to you saying, I didn't like what you said. Yeah. I mean, one, one time these people, I remember the couple, they came and it was, she was giving him the book for their anniversary, right? This is the very last people in line, Charlotte, North Carolina. The guy wrote in his book, you deserve better than this. Well, he wrote me, they both did, a furious letter. How dare you, after all that time we waited, that you say I deserve better than my wife. Who are you to criticize my wife? And I wrote back and said, I meant you deserve better than me. Right. You deserve better than take it to my show. Not your ugly wife. Book. You deserve better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they just got it completely wrong, but I thought, you know, I was warm with them. Does that bother you? I was. Just that they wouldn't meet. Because the way I was with them is not, they, they, they completely blind to to my manner well that's just it so these are people who you would think who waited hours to get your autograph they love your work they have a great sense of humor then they would misconstrue something that obvious does i mean would that bother you it would bother me it bothered me just that i thought well what then what can you you know what can you but it has to bother you right because you're not reading criticism online you're not reading amazon reviews no and I'm sure there's tons of that stuff. And out the there. reason you're not reading that is because it would bother you. Yeah, but I mean, you know, did you read about that new? It's a new app, and then someone told me perhaps it had been killed called People. And, and of course, it can't be spelled B-E-O-P-L-E. It has to be P-E-E-P, you know, L-E. And and it was invented by these two nitwits, and they were interviewed in the New York Times. And People, it's like um, Yelp. For, pe for people. Oh, no, they rank people? Yeah, oh, so geez. someone could come to my book signing, mm. and they could rank me, and there's nothing I can do to stop it. Wow. Right? And this nitwit, one, two women who invented it, one of them said, you know, well, I have children, and this will let me know who my children should be hanging out with. And I thought, no, it doesn't. It's like on Yelp, the, the reviews on Yelp, they don't tell me about the restaurant or the hotel. They tell me about the person Right. who wants to be a restaurant critic or the person who wanted an upgrade at the hotel and didn't get it, and this is their revenge. But I know other people who read, you know, read about themselves. And some of these people, you know, like Lena Dunham, the <coughs> magnet for... Angry. Really awful. And, and so, and I don't know that she does it anymore, but 
I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. If she can go on and read criticisms of, of the way she looks, uh, that's a very strong personality. Amy Schumer, too, I would think. I couldn't do that. I'm very sensitive. Do you think Amy Schumer reads her stuff? Yeah, I think so. I think most people read their stuff. Oh, I've never. You never read any of your Amazon myself. reviews? No, no, no. Nothing. Not you never even never. look at your ranking on Amazon? Never. Really? Well, that's, that takes a strong person to do that. I'm checking my Amazon reviews twice a day. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know if sometimes not seeing it, it's worse in my imagination than I think it's going to be. You know, I, I don't know that I ever submitted anything to anywhere. I just always waited for people to ask me to do things. So I started reading out loud. I read out loud, and then somebody said, oh, will you come and read out loud next week? And I said, sure. Oh, will you come and read out loud two weeks from now? Oh, can we publish, the, can we have a copy of that to put in a magazine, in our zine, or a, you know, literary magazine that no one's ever read? Sure. And I thought, well, if I keep it up, maybe better places will, you know, but I was never the kind of person who, who would, push myself on people. But I, I did move to New York City because I thought chances are if someone's going to ask you, you know, if the New Yorker's going to ask you to write for me, you kind of need to be in their town. Or, you know, you need to be someplace where, or if, some, if you want someone to say, hey, do you have a book we can publish? You should probably live in New York City because they don't publish books in Raleigh or in Chicago. So I was willing to move for it. But I, I thought, too, in New York City where you know, people can be so self-promotional. It feels good to, it feels good to find somebody. It feels good to go to somebody and invite, invite them before they can ask you. Yeah. Everybody wants that. There's so much self-promotion and you wonder how effective it is in the end. There's so many people self-promoting about themselves. In the end, if someone wants you, they're going to ask you. Well, I, I mean, I get a lot of manuscripts and stuff when I go on tour. They hand you books and... And, and, and stories that they've written. And, you know, you can feel free to pass this on to the New Yorker. And it's somebody who's 20. And nobody gets published when they're 20. No. You know, you shouldn't even be thinking about being published That's when just it. 20. Where do they have the gumption to think that they deserve to be published in the New Yorker at 20? I mean, I think a lot of people feel like that's half the battle to be confident, but I don't. I think confidence is overrated sometimes. All right. So, if someone is out there listening, or a young writer, what what, what advice would you give them? To just work every day. To just keep working, and then trust that the rest will take care of itself. Don't worry about. You know, I, I was very lucky. I think that I lived in a time before you would have a blog or before you would self-publish a book. For the first seven years that I wrote, nobody saw any of it, and which is good, because good it's yeah. awful. Um, but I think maybe if I was young now, I would think, well, gosh, I just want to get it out there. And so I started my blog, and how many people looked at my blog today? It's like having something in a magazine. You know, it's different. It's That's nice and fine to have everything in a magazine, but I love being on stage and reading something out loud and hearing the audience and hearing that reaction. David, let's go get something to eat. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you. Obviously, Mike. you had better things to be doing. You're a great guy. I really appreciate it. Nothing better to do. I don't believe you. Thank you. Da, da, da.
So as all listeners to this podcast know, the doing itters, I have recently been attempting to find my inner amazing, my inner awesome, as my Mexican healer has called it. Here's the thing about me. I have a passion for passion. So I've been reaching out to loved ones who have meant everything to me over the years. They are really the stars to whom I create the constellation of my life. And one person I've wanted to speak to forever was my first girlfriend, my first kiss, Jenny Cook. This all happened on a class trip. We took two class trips, ninth grade. But this was a first class trip to Williamsburg, Virginia, ninth grade. And we went out for about a month. And I have a lot of fantastic memories about that time, like that night I was caught by her father outside her window in a tree, just like in that scene in Back to the Future. We had a lot of fun. We did break up after a month, and Jenny went out with a lifeguard at Virginia Beach. That's the person she went out with after she went out with me. There are certain people from junior high school, high school, college who are easy to find. Some are really difficult to find. So I've been trying to reach Jenny for years and years, and I only had an old email for her, jennycook at earls.com. I had some questions that I wanted to ask her. So I called her mother. I looked her up down in, in Florida where she now lives. She's retired. And she told me that Jenny was now working as a doctor. And then she told me where Jenny is working. But I didn't want to bother her at work. So I started calling Jenny at home, emailing her. But she never really got back to me. And I assumed at first she didn't want to. But I thought about it some more. And I consulted with my dream dictionary. And I figured out that it was really up to me to make this happen, that I was the alpha dog in this reconnection, that a lot of my dreams were, in essence, telling me to get in touch, and I always trust my dreams. So I did end up calling her at work. It didn't go great. It didn't go terribly, but it didn't go great. And I play it for you now for one reason, and that is for to encourage you to reach out to those loved ones who've meant a lot in your lives. I think you will be thankful that you've done so. I apologize for the sound quality. I was using a public phone where I make all my important calls when I want privacy. The phone is located behind the Highs Grocery on Rockville Pike. Also, Jenny's work phone was not the best type of phone for a recording, so I do apologize for the lack of cleanness in this. And here is my conversation with Jen. Suburban Hospital, how may I direct your call? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to reach a br the brain doctor for kids section. Excuse me? Brain doctor for kids. You mean pediatric neurology? Sure. Yes. Yes, thank you. Pediatric neurology? Yes, I'd like to speak with Dr. Jennifer Cook, please. She's on rounds. Uh, I can put you through to answering service. Uh, this is an emergency. Starting what? Uh, regarding a kid who has something wrong with her brain. Are you a doctor? Yes. Hospital? What? What hospital? General. And your name? Dr. Sachs. And Dr. Cook will know what this pertains to? Get her. All right. I'll have Dr. Cook paged. Jenny. Hello? It's Mike Sachs. 
Mike Sachs? From junior high school, through high school. Oh. You're a doctor now? Yeah. Where do you practice? Actually, I work at a magazine. I'm a writer, and I have my own podcast. Okay. 300 listeners, 200 downloads per week. All right. I've been trying to reach you forever, and I thought this might be a good time. You don't seem to be getting back to me on your Earls.com account. Oh, oh I, I got rid of that years ago. Thanks for letting me know, man. Right. Can I have your new email, please? What is this pertaining to? I was told this was a medical emergency. Ooh, so formal. It is. God, I've been thinking about this for so long. Oh, man, where to begin? I, you know... I really need to get going. Just hold on a second, okay? I was patient with you when your dad was dying. What? You don't remember your dad dying? Uh, of course I remember my dad dying. It's one of the reasons I became a doctor. All right, well, I'll get to that later. Listen, I want to ask you about our first-class trip to Williamsburg, Virginia. We took two, but I want to concentrate on the first one. In ninth grade? Yeah. Oh, what about it? That's when we first started going out. We went out for like a month. I know, but you were my first. I, uh, I guess you were my first, too. See, this is kind of historic. Uh, Historic. We kissed while we were wearing a uh, tri-corner hats, and you pretended to be locked in the stake. We, we laughed. Okay, okay. Mark um, also had a crush on you, but you chose me. And you later chose you later chose Mark. You later went out with him. But I'm curious to know why you chose me first. I I, I don't remember. You do. This this is the best time, Mike. Oh, I think it is. In fact, I know it is. I, I don't know. You were nice. All right, what else? Was I cute? I don't know, Mike. I'll give you my cell, and we can talk later, okay? Remember when we broke up? Uh, yeah, I guess. We, we went out for a month. I was really upset. I'm, I'm sorry. But you broke up with me. Now your memory kicks in? I didn't know what I was doing. It was a mistake. Do you never make mistakes? You're so perfect as a doctor. Sure. Do you ever think about me sometimes, you know, in certain moments of romantic... No! I wrote you a poem. It's about a celestial bed that's stuffed with aphrodisiacs, fresh wheat, rose leaves, lavender, and hair from a stallion's tail. Because I remember that you really like fantasy. Wh why? What? I wrote you another poem, too, and this one is funny. Can I say it? I really need to get back to my patient, okay? My, my thing ain't thick, but it certainly doesn't I, trick. Is that really why you left me, or was it because I spied on you from a tree? Looked right into your room to see you undress. God, that whole thing was a mess. Got oh, my God. I, back to the future. Bet you now wish you could have been way cooler. I apologize ten million times, and even once in rhyme. Jen, can I email you? I, was, I just need your email. I want to send you the poem, and I want to send you some other things. You know, I... I really need to get back. I need your email. I really do have to head back. What's so vital that I can't wait? A malignant tumor near the pituitary gland. What? A brain tumor. So one of the reasons that I'm calling is that I've been spending a lot of time in recent months attempting to find my inner amazing, my inner awesome. And one of the ways I can do this is to get close to the people who've meant a lot to me over the years. 
I really need to get back. You will listen, just like I used to listen to you complain about your migraines. Yeah, I feel one coming on. Can I tell you a secret? Sure. I hate lifeguards. Okay. Want to know why? Why? Because you went out with one for years and years at Virginia Beach. I also hate female weathermen. You want to know why? Sure. That one's a secret. I really do need to get back. I think you might need some help. Oh, you think so, Doctor? Do you know that I have my own podcast now and that you're now on it? Yeah. You told me earlier. Jen. Jennifer. Jen, I'm getting a divorce. I'm so sorry to hear that. Are you? This child might die if I don't get back you right now. You're on a live podcast right now. Him or me? It's a her. Or me. Hello? Jen, I need your medical help real bad. What's wrong? I just stubbed my toe with a plastic swizzle stick. It had a flamingo on the top. Are you drunk? And that's your business. Why? Incredible, right? Hasn't changed a bit. Selfish as the day is long. Pathetic always was. The world according to Jen. That's it for the 423rd episode of Doing It with Mike Sachs. Here are some highlights from the upcoming podcast. A 90-minute interview with a guy who invented the cheese in the crust pizza. And I have to say, this guy was not easy to find. He's currently jailed in a Malaysian prison. And it was just sheer luck that brought us into contact. I will be swimming with dolphins and then eating them. A first-person essay about my dream that I've had since I was a teenager about dying a cruel death on a neighbor's trampoline on Thanksgiving. I'm going to be reading in full Chapter 4 from the novelization to The Golden Child with Eddie Murphy. Now, we've done this before, the very best Genesis songs to listen to while doing it. And this is the tenth time I think we've done this. And the question is this, will the fantastic song We Can't Dance once again be at the top? There will be an interview with far-right author Randall Stilson and his new bestseller, The United Snakes of America. Interview with the producer for the 1980 sitcom Bad Bad Leroy and the follow-up Leroy Goes to College. Mr. Rocks will stop by with another update on his trip to Binghamton, New York, and what he found up there. Any calcite this week, we will find out. Judge John Rodgeman will take questions while wearing an hilarious bushy mustache. He'll say things in a funny and ironic way. I love this guy. Two-Step Lucy will show off her verbal dexterity while chewing on a Twizzler, but not with her mouth. There'll be the thought for the week, which will be why your affliction bothers me. Are homeless guys becoming too needy? And finally, why the clitoris is called the devil's raspberry in ancient Greek. The owner of my favorite gyro stand, Yoni, told me about this, and it should be a lot of fun. I appreciate you joining us. A few shout-outs. Dax Jordan for playing Jimmy Jam Johnson, a classic rock DJ suffering a nervous breakdown. Dax's work can be found at DaxJordan.com. He's a very funny stand-up. Check it out. Mike Chase, thank you in Portland for editing that piece together. Emma Allen and David Sedaris, thank you for sitting down and talking with me. Danielle Deshanes and Andrea Salenzi, the great Julie Wright. Rob Schulte for producing, editing, wrangling, and putting all of this into cohesive form. Rob is the one to thank or possibly blame for this podcast. Rob can be reached at robkschulte.com. Let me spell it for you. R-O-B-K-S-C-H-U-L-T-E.com. Rob is involved with a great podcast called GFY with Max and Rob. 
and Rob is moving to New York soon. So if you know of any producing, editing, radio jobs, get in touch with this guy. He's fantastic. My latest book is called Poking a Dead Frog, Conversations with Today's Top Comedy Writers. My website is MikeSacks.com and DoingItWithMikeSacks.com. Until next time, keep your feet on the ground and keep doing it. You'd be surprised at the number of young people who said they want to be like James Brown. But my advice to them is to first get a good education, then pursue a career. Don't be a dropout. Join the rest of your friends that are headed back to school.